Welcome to Silicon Valley Vibes, a podcast from SVLG. It's a read on the issues, ideas, and innovations in the Valley, all from talking to the people driving them. I'm your AI announcer, Vivi. In this episode, we touch on autonomous workforces. Then we talk about how AI connects with DEI today. And we finish up with some algorithm and the former vice president on climate policy. Here to break it down are our SVLG hosts, Nadia Anderson, chief of staff for SVLG and SVP of strategy as well as her co-host, Peter Lero Munoz, SVLG General Counsel and SVP of Tech and Innovation. Welcome to the show. I'm Nadia Anderson. And I'm Peter Lero Munoz, and we're excited to bring you Silicon Valley Vibes. On this episode of SVV, I'm speaking with Scotty Carter, DNI expert, to get his take on the intersection of AI and DNI. And then, with our Energy and Sustainability Summit just around the corner, We'll also hear a rebroadcast of a conversation between SVLG's CEO, Ahmad Thomas, with Vice President Al Gore. But first, Peter, tell us a bit about your conversation with Sydney Journal from Aurora. Thanks, Nadia. For our listeners who may not be aware of who Aurora is and what they do, they are a leading company in autonomous freight and building autonomous trucks that will travel throughout our country on our highways, delivering critical goods and materials. When most people think about autonomous, they think about the software stacks, they think about algorithms, but there's also this interesting component when it comes to the workforce and the people. Tell us a little bit about this. That was a big part of our discussion. That is bringing together the tech and the workforce. And we know there is a national shortage of truck drivers in this country. And that's an important key is how do we bring the workforce together with the innovation to provide solutions for consumers, and residents around the state, but also around the country. Take a listen. Sydney, it is great to talk with you. We have worked together a lot over the last several years. Can you give us an overview on Aurora and where we are right now on autonomous freight? Thank you, Peter. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Uh, It's truly an honor and a privilege. So thank you. Thank you for inviting us. So yes, a little bit on Aurora itself. I get this question a lot. Uh, What do you do? And what is um, what is the industry doing right now? So we at Aurora, we're focused on self-driving tech, and our mission is to deliver the benefits of self-driving tech uh, safely, quickly, and broadly. And we are focused right now on autonomous trucks, so we do focus on passenger mobility as well, but much of what we're doing is autonomous trucks uh, in Texas. We actually have pilots there right now between Dallas and Houston. And we're going to be launching a commercial product next year where we will be removing the driver along that route in Dallas and Houston. So in a nutshell, it's pretty exciting times here in the autonomous vehicle industry, and we're incredibly excited to be part of it. Autonomous vehicles seem to be a very critical part of our innovation ecosystem. What is their role with regard to new technology and how do they fit within our larger culture? I'd say there's a number of ways in which this technology is beneficial uh, for consumers and and for broader society. Uh, First and foremost, I'd say it's the safety benefits. I'm sure you've seen how the roads are today, right? And this is a technology that does not have road rage, drives the speed limit, does not drive under the influence. So these are much safer drivers. So I think that is first and foremost, the huge benefit. I think we all remember last year seeing pictures and hearing news stories about goods that were sitting at our ports along the West Coast that were just there waiting for somebody to come and actually deliver them. Can you speak just a little bit more about how addressing supply chain issues helps innovation more broadly? 
when we're thinking about supply chain crisis, there's also a piece around the labor shortage and the need for truck drivers today. And uh, that is a growing shortage. I, the numbers are, I think, 80,000 in terms of drive, truck drivers and drastically growing uh, in the years to come. And it's a tough job. These are long haul routes. Uh, it takes you away from your family. It's physically taxing. So, uh, I, you know, it's a difficult job. And our technology could help in that regard. Um, we could do some of those long haul routes, um, supplement where there is a driver shortage. Uh, again, there is, we would not be taking all of these. It would not be an overnight, um, you know, switch that you flip and we've got all these vehicles out there. It's a very, you know, iterative process and it's a small piece of it. And we've been very focused on that at Aurora is thinking through what is our role as we think about new jobs in the future and, and how can we help build that pipeline? Building that pipeline is going to be essential. And that number you shared about being short 80,000 drivers is big. That's a number that's actually being put out there by the American Trucking Association. There are a lot of other jobs, though, that are also impacted by autonomous vehicles. Can you talk a little bit about growing a workforce around some of the jobs that may not involve being inside an autonomous vehicle? We've seen jobs around maintaining the vehicles. Technicians who understand how to take those traditional mechanics background, but apply it to robotics um, and, and adding that and, and figuring out how do you troubleshoot our vehicles, whether it's, you know, the software, the LIDAR, the radar, whatever sensors, um, that's one form of job. Uh, other ones that we're seeing around where our pilots are running in Texas between Dallas and Houston we are building terminals because our model is very much a terminal to terminal, hub to hub. And as we build these terminals, one, they're, they're not in these urban centers. They're outside where, frankly, some cities and towns that don't get quite the attention because they are so close to an urban center. And we're building terminals there, which means we have, you know, dispatch type roles and terminal type roles and, um, you know, these are being created uh, everywhere where we have operations. And I will mention as well, I like this term in, in with respect to the jobs that we are focused on. We like to call them the mechanics of the 21st century. So these are um, folks who, who know how to work on our vehicles, which are, you know, quite different from your traditional truck. How is Aurora helping to build a pipeline of workers who will be able to meet that employment demand in the coming years? So we think about the workforce uh, quite seriously in terms of, uh, you know, what are those jobs that we're going to need um, as Aurora, but also as an industry, you know, three, four years out or more. And uh, the way we've been thinking about it in areas where, you know, we can test and deploy um, so this would be particularly in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Texas and other states. But we think about, you know, what are the skills we're going to need and who are our partners that we can work with in those regions? So to give you an example, one of the most recent programs that we launched was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with Pittsburgh Technical College. And this is a 18-month program that, as I was mentioning earlier, trains uh, trains students around the traditional engineering, mechanics, robotics, all of that, 
but it, but adds on to it, right? So that they can now work on autonomous vehicles, whether it's again troubleshooting, who knows what it may be. And this is a new type of role, and you know certainly helpful for Aurora and for the autonomous vehicle industry. But this is helpful for essentially all robotics industries that we see are growing. And Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is an example where there are over a hundred companies focused on robotics. So having this partnership with Pittsburgh Technical College, with Aurora providing um, you know, a guidance around uh, the skills that are necessary, um, all of that is, is helping build that pipeline. And that's just one example. We're also working on that in Bozeman, Montana, and that one's that program with Gallatin College out of Montana State University has been ongoing for several years and, again, is training technicians around LIDAR and photonics uh, and very helpful for the work that we do in Bozeman because that's where our LIDAR is developed. And so I can tell you that we, we compete for graduates from that program with all the other companies because we need them um, to help us in order to grow and expand Aurora. For those who may be listening and not as familiar with AV technology, can you give us a quick overview of what LiDAR is and how it incorporates into your autonomous vehicles? Yes, and thank you for flagging that. We do often in the autonomous vehicle industry use terms that I was not familiar with before, LiDAR being one of them. So LiDAR is one of the sensors that we use in order to have the vehicle see. It's kind of, if you imagine the vision, but it's certainly... Um, much more than just, you know, cameras. And LiDAR is the use of photons. And I'm going to use another big word, uh, but it's the type of LiDAR that we use is what we call FMCW, which is Frequency Modulated Continuous Wave. Don't need to memorize that, but it's essentially just photons, beams of light that um, we can we can beam out and then they come back to us and that way we can get a sense of what the range, the velocity is, um, how far the object is, you know, again, what speed it's going at. And the reason that is so important for us, and it's a proprietary technology and a large reason why we have a presence in Bozeman and are expanding in Bozeman, Montana, it's because that technology allows us to see up to 400 meters or so at highway speeds. And so when we have that further distance, right, that visual distance, we have more time for the Aurora driver to make decisions on the road. And when you're, when you're on a highway at highway speeds, you know, seven to nine seconds in advance, seeing an object that maybe a human wouldn't see is, is very helpful. So that is why that technology is so important and why we compete so much for those, those graduates out of the Gallatin College program. Sydney, I want to thank you for taking time to join us today. I think you've given us a great overview, not only of the AV industry as a whole, but also the incredible work that Aurora is doing. Thank you again, and we will continue to keep an eye on the amazing work from Aurora that will be coming in the future years. Thanks for having me, Peter. We'll be back with more Silicon Valley vibes after this. Hi, Shannon Diatley Johnson, SVP and Head of Events at SVLG. Save the date for SVLG's 11th Annual Energy and Sustainability Summit, presented by Western Digital at the Oracle Conference Center in Redwood. Everyone's welcome to register at svlg.org forward slash events. We look forward to seeing you soon. 
Hi, this is Vivi. Welcome back to the conversation and the innovation on Silicon Valley Vibes. Speaking of innovation, I recently had a conversation with Scotty Carter, who is a DEI expert, touching on the other hot and burning issue in the Valley. Peter, can you guess what that issue is? Well, Nadia, there are really only two letters that people are talking about right now in the Valley, and I'm guessing it's A and I. Is that correct? You are spot on. We had a conversation about DEI and AI. Take a listen. Hey, Scotty, it is great to virtually meet you. Welcome to Silicon Valley Vibes, and thanks for joining us today. Tell me a little bit about your background. I looked at your, your LinkedIn page, attorney, worked in tax, worked on a number of different things, and then also went to lead DNI for a major corporation. So tell me a little bit about your path. Sure. Uh, Scotty Carter, I am originally from Chicago, Illinois. You know, I would I always tell people that, you know, diversity and inclusion was a passion of mine since I was younger, right? Like I was in high school starting up like inclusion groups, right? Like that's what I was doing to do and we deal with nonprofits. And so I just figured, <laughs> you know, that that's something you just need to get paid to do. You just, you know, just kind of like what you have to do. And if you see what I look like, you know, I have, I've always uh, been in places in which I was maybe the only one that was a minority or, you know, asked to speak on behalf of a certain group. Right. And so from early on, I was like, how do I include other people in these conversations and the dialogues, right? And so I uh, went from Chicago, went to uh, Hampton University, which is the HBCU, which is a historically Black college or university for those who aren't aware of the acronym. Um, You're not going to call it your home by the sea? You're not going to say that my home by the sea? I mean, that would be correct. It would be my home by the sea, being a Hamptonian. Uh, so graduated there with a bachelor's of political science. Uh, spent like five years or actually four years working and just decided that like, you know, I wanted to go to law school. I've always had a desire, but let me tell you, after college and you being a broke college student for so long, you kind of like, I want to make some money. But uh, the calling came back. So I ended up going, you know, three hours north up to uh, Howard University School of Law. I got my uh, JD, uh, great experience. But I didn't want to actually practice, practice. But I wanted to be legal adjacent. And so I went to go work uh, for Bloomberg, Bloomberg Industry Group, um, doing Bloomberg Law, which is like a legal resource platform. So it's like Google for lawyers. And all the while, while me doing this, I'm still like working on being in more inclusive environments. I'm still, you know, building spaces for people who are, you know, protected under the EEOC. It's a nice way to say, you know, black and brown, you know, disenfranchised groups. I still was doing that, and uh, I would uh, I got affectionately called the DNI Batman while I was at Bloomberg because uh, during the daytime I was doing my day job, you know I was you know doing a corporate gig, but like off hours, um, even on the weekends sometimes I was really doing you know more uh, person inclusion work, and a lot of my colleagues, even my supervisors, would be like the work that you do, you know makes a difference, but it's not the work you get paid to do. And so uh, I got an opportunity to uh, consult also as well as kind of like moonlight as a DNI practitioner, I still do consulting. Uh, and so I got to really, for lack of a word, like see if, if the skills I had been practicing and working on actually made a difference in big corporations or, you know, different spaces. So um, enjoyed it, 
Uh, and then in 2021, I had a great opportunity to be the vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion for uh, the United Way out here in the Great Twin Cities, uh, which is, you know, uh, Minnesota here and uh, uh, Minneapolis and, and uh, St. Paul. All of the work I was doing that was like volunteer-esque or work I wasn't getting paid to do, I now was getting paid. Yeah, so I want to touch on two things you said. First, I love a good comic reference. I'm a Marvel fan as opposed to DC, but Batman is one that it comes up a lot when talking about D&I, believe it or not, because of that thing you just said that it may not be your day job, but it is what it is that you do. And you spend your own time and resources because you have a, a passion and sense for the work. And the other way it's framed is, a lot of people are Batman in the sense of like the hero that lots of people needed but didn't know they could have at the time. And also, you know, that thin line of hero villain, depending on position where you sit and what it is that you're doing. So I want to do sort of like a hard pivot to something that is also like a new and emerging topic that is intersecting with the DNI space, which is this new buzzword called AI. Tell us, what is AI? Like simple man's version, talk turkey to us, give us whatever the, the, the clear and easy version for what this thing is that we're now hearing about. 24-7. Yeah, it's 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 crazy. But you know, artificial intelligence is that's what AI stands for. And, you know, I, I won't date myself in age, but as long as I've, you know, been alive and watching TV and watching Hollywood, we've always talked about some level of artificial intelligence or AI is going to make our life horrible or fantastic, depending on what you're watching. And uh, you know, we are now in a time in 2023 where the technology we talked about in the 90s is here. So like the phone Siri should like ring a bell for people to say, oh my God, like artificial intelligence is in my phone, the phone I use every day. So why would it not be in, you know, certain technologies that makes a difference upon whether I get a house or not, I get that loan. I am recognized by software, by camera. Like we don't really think about how dare I say, invasive AIs in our lives. Based on what you've seen, what you've heard, people you've engaged with, what's sort of the overall perception of AI? Is it something that people are, you know, cautiously optimistic about? Is it something that people have general questions about? Or as you mentioned, do people see it as something that is already integrated in many of the things that we do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it's a mixed bag. So, you know, you have people who have smart homes and you hear like, hey, you come in the house, they turn on the lights or turn the temperature up to, you know, 76 degrees. And so, so there's, you know, there's that mixed bag. But then you have people, and 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 I've talked to and had conversations with, where they're really concerned, uh, especially being, you know, these are minorities, you know, who will say, hey, like, I read an article about facial recognition, you know, mistaking, you know, black and brown people, uh, and their various organizations, you know, uh, police organizations across the country who are using the software, sort of like wait a minute, you know, that raises alarms. And so you have a mixed bag, uh, but I would, I, I always kind of bring back to the point of need to be vigilant about any technology that makes your life easier. You should be more kind of thinking about some of the implications. You briefly mentioned, you know, articles about AI and how people are using AI to sort of make decisions and how those outcomes can be harmful to certain populations. You mentioned, you know, loans, but also, you know, their conversations, you know, in articles about hiring practices, you know, attempting to screen out bias, but then creating um, an issue or challenge somewhere else. How do you think that we should be approaching it when it comes to the DEI space? Like, is it 
a tool that we should be exploring? Is it something that we maybe need to be using, but, you know, use it like, you know, sodium, you know, just a little bit and not too much? Or like, how do you think we should be moving about when it comes to AI and DNI? DNI and AI needs to be like really kind of working in lockstep, really because like to use a phrase, like the, the, the two paces out the two, right? Like we're not going backwards for AI, right? Like the proponents of AI is going to say, hey, look, it doesn't see color, right? This is just an algorithm. It doesn't know. And it's like, Actually, it does, you know, actually, because you who created AI are inherently have biases. And so we need people to be saying, hey, what are some of the practices you have with the programmers or some of the rules and regulations? For example, you use, you know, talking about like the social media and, oh, like it just happened to know that you were talking about getting some type of Pringles that you liked or some, some type of drink or you wanted a Starbucks drink and it just pops up, right? Like, those things become infringements on your rights. And oftentimes, historically speaking, you know, disenfranchised groups have, you know, their rights taken advantage of far easier, far longer. And so that's when DNI needs to be on the forefront and say, hey, look, like, let's just for once, let's get in front of a thing instead of like being reactive to uh, a space. And so that's that's what I think DNI, like, we need to be in lockstep, like, Let's embrace it, but let's also call it out now because I think we really won't have a choice later. That makes perfect sense. And it's one of those situations too where like the fabric of the country that we exist in is what it is. It's been in place for a really, really long time and there's some deep-seated things that even some of us are not aware of. And when you start incorporating technology or exploring things, it may come out inadvertently or be able to highlight it. And I think, as you mentioned, being in the forefront of the conversation and being engaged is a way to make sure that you are able to identify and spot those things. I remember, it was like back in the day, it was like maybe like some type of like sporting technology wasn't able to sort of like read the, the metrics on people with darker, with melanin, with more melanin. And it was something that wasn't designed to be that way. It just happened that way because of, you look at the population of who built it, who's usually like the testers of it, the early adopters based on, you know, socioeconomic status or who they market to. And so you kind of have this like self-fulfilling like prophecy where it doesn't operate the way that it should. Um, and then there are conversations about, you know, who, where does the burden of proof lie or the responsibility? Should you have to prove that it is not having any negative impacts or implications before it can be like widely scaled or adopted? And so that's the question I wanted to pose to you. Like, what are your thoughts about that? Because there is, you know, the balance between moving fast and innovating and having some, you know, some benefits, but also recognizing there's some cautionary parts. So how do you think, how do you as a practitioner approach that? And what do you think the, the best course of action should be? Yeah, I mean, there, there is a balance. I believe in the notion of, you know, you, you look twice and cut once, right? When things grow fast, it's like, okay, for the greater good, you need to be able to be able to slow down. And I think um, if we all kind of had that thought process about, you know, our innovations, the impact that it has, not just on my immediate circle, but the world at large, I think it would help the world at large. Um, I know that here in America, we live in a capitalist society. We're always kind of like trying to be the first to get something new. But then we often come back and, and think about, man, I wish I had spent a little bit more time. And so we should learn from our history. And so I think that's what I would say. Like, you know, I understand that we we want to think about just being fast and moving quickly and 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 like I said, being the first to do something. Uh, but now we have too much information. I mean, 
you know, when you think about like, oh, it, would it really harm you to have a conversation or to do unconscious bias training for programmers? Or thinking about, hey, did you think about that disenfranchised group of people? Yeah, I, I think a, a slight, even though it was a speed bump, it still makes you hesitant a little bit. Uh, you know, that's a good speeding reference for people who drive through places. And it's like, you drive fast, but you see that speed bump. Even if you're going to not slow down entirely, you, you still do slow down with it. I want to take the conversation and move it sort of from like theory to practice. So based on your knowledge of the discipline in the field of, you know, D&I work working either inside of corporations or externally, do you have any top of mind applications for AI that you think would be helpful? You know, I, I want to just say outright, I think technology is fantastic where technology does help and, and make our lives better. I do believe that. And so, um, you know, when it even comes to, you know, doing, you know, hiring practices, right? Like, you know, you're going to need some level of technology to kind of help you you know, work through, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of applications like that is a practical sense, makes sense. I would also say in the same regard, like using like, you know, AI to kind of help you, you know, filter down, you know, particular applications that you also program it to notice, you know, vernacular that is different. So for example, uh, you know, men and women historically on, you know, resumes describe their, their strengths differently. You need your AI or you need your program to be able to to note that because if you don't you know you're going to get applications that are going to be all of a certain type and so that's why i would say like a real life application is like you know doing the hiring process and trying to recruit and, and like understand how to, to you know work through that type of uh i would just say minefield applicants right but just because you have the technology doesn't mean it cannot be improved it cannot be something that you also don't dedicate only to the technology because I've heard that from working in house um, from, you know, hiring practitioners and like, look, I mean, this is what the app, this is what the AI gave us and we didn't check. And I'm like, I don't know if we're there that you don't check behind the AI's work. Yeah. So essentially like the, the key takeaway is that this is coming, it's here and it's going to continue to grow and develop. And in order to make sure that it is, I'm going to say doing no harm and serving the need that it can, we all need to be involved. We all need to be paying attention and we all need to be actively giving feedback about what's working, what's not working. And of course we need more people in the room where it happens. So behind the scenes, making sure that they are building things from the ground up, but also have the, I'm going to say the means and resources internally to be able to effectuate change if change is needed. And that there also is a role for, you know, the government to play when it comes to this because of, it's wide impact on everybody. So I know we are beginning to brush up on time. So I did want to ask you, who's the real HU and why? So when I am brought to this question, uh, so for people who don't know, uh, Hampton University and Howard University are two HBCUs, premier HBCUs, and they've been rivals something way before my time. Uh, and so what I will always tell people is that I learned how to be a man. I grew up at Hampton. I went to Howard after I had a 401k, after I had had some expenses. You know, I I, I was a grown, grown man at, at, at Howard. And so it's always going to be, um, you know, Hampton for me in terms of being a real HU. Although I will admit to everyone here who may be yelling at the screen, like, but it was how it was Hampton Institute. And I understand that it was. So having said that, 
I recognize that H-U, the real H-U, you know, H-U, you know, understood. I love it. That is a absolute perfect answer. And I'd be remiss if I didn't also plug my HBCU. So Virginia State, Land of Troy, Hell Trojans, Go State, throwing it out into the mix as well. No, Scotty, this has been an absolutely awesome conversation. I love that you are in the space. I'm sending you good vibes on the work that you are doing and continuing to elevate the importance of AI. And I'm also going to challenge all of our listeners out there to pay a little bit more attention, do your work, do your homework, make sure that it is a benefit to you. But also, if there are things that you want to talk about, bring them to the table, because as this technology grows and develops, it's going to be imperative that all of our voices are collectively heard and shared, and we can make sure that we enter into the future we all want to see, as opposed to what could possibly happen if we are not you know, paying attention, as you mentioned. Silicon Valley Vibes will be back after this quick message. I'm Ahmad Thomas, CEO at the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. As part of our acceleration agenda, I'm here to announce SVLG's new working group on responsible AI. It's the first initiative we're rolling out under our new Technology and Innovation Center of Expertise. We recognize the tremendous potential of and profound interest around this new technology, and we're committed to ensuring that AI is developed and implemented in a responsible way. The working group is co chaired by SVLG member companies Google and Johnson & Johnson. As the group takes shape, we look forward to working with industry experts, academics, and other stakeholders to bring diverse voices, perspectives, and disciplines to the table. If you'd like to get involved, please visit svlg.org to learn more. Up next, the keynote speaker from last year's SVLG Sustainability Summit, former Vice President Al Gore on Silicon Valley Vibes. We thought this would be the perfect time to look back at last year's summit and a conversation between SVLG CEO Ahmad Thomas and former Vice President Al Gore. Woo, talk about a spicy conversation that happened. But if ever there was a time for a t-shirt that said Al Gore was or may be right, I think now's the time. He covered where we've been on the environment, where we are and where we're going. And the former Vice President also had some very choice words for David Malpass and uh, wisely predicted the outcome of his tenure at the World Bank. Let's take a listen. Vice President Gore, we are honored to have you here today. Truly a pleasure to learn from you. So right at the top, a huge thank you. Well, Ahmad, thank you. It's an honor to be invited. I have tremendous respect for the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. I've uh, spoken in some years past uh, to this organization. I'm a big fan of the leadership you all are providing, not only in the Valley, but uh, in our country and internationally as well. So thank you for inviting me. My sense is that you, you are a, a, real, a realist, yet an optimist. What are businesses getting right? Uh, Apple, Kleiner Perkins, right, where you're on the board, you're a leader, they're longtime members here at Silicon Valley Leadership Group. So many of our CEOs and executives are committed to trying to do the right thing. What's going well in your estimation? Well, uh, to give you one example, uh, partly because of the incredible um, innovation in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, uh, the uh, solar electricity industry and the wind electricity industry have both matured to the point where electricity from both wind and solar is now cheaper than electricity from burning fossil fuels in almost every uh, geography on Earth. Uh, that's relatively new that we've crossed that threshold. Right. But where new build is concerned, uh, 
it's good news that if you look at all of the new electricity generation installed worldwide in every country last year, 90% of it is renewable. Uh, and almost mm -hmm. all of that, solar and wind. And the International Energy Agency uh, uh, projects that in the balance of this decade and going forward, 95% of all new electricity generation will be solar and wind. Uh, on the transportation front, which is in the U.S., the biggest source of global warming pollution, right. electric vehicles uh, are rapidly uh, uh, becoming cost competitive. Uh, we have now the promise of green hydrogen made from uh, the zero marginal cost renewable electricity. That's the flip side of intermittency when they have more being produced than demand for it. And all of a sudden it becomes economical to crack water apart and get the um, zero emission green hydrogen. It'll take some time to scale that up, but it's coming, I'm confident. Uh, circular supply chains are coming along. Um, the revolution in uh, regenerative agriculture and sustainable forestry is extremely important. Uh, Ahmad, what, what we're seeing more broadly is uh, a sustainability revolution uh, that's mm -hmm. taking hold across every sector of our economy. Uh, it, it's uh, based in part on new information technologies uh, like machine learning and artificial intelligence, even blockchain, uh, but also developments uh, in, in uh, uh, biology and genetics. We're seeing many executive teams uh, now acquire the ability uh, to manage uh, protons and electrons and uh, atoms and molecules uh, uh, and, and proteins and genes and uh, with the same facility that the IT companies have long since demonstrated in managing bits of information. And this sustainability revolution, which features levels of uh, hyper-precision that were unimaginable in the past, uh, we're, it now has the magnitude of the industrial revolution coupled with the speed of the digital revolution. Uh, and it's right. every bit as disruptive as the digital revolution. And it's producing winners and losers. But those who are first movers or early movers are way more likely to benefit from what is now being commonly understood as the largest new investing opportunity in the history of the world. Are there particular areas of innovation technology that that most excites you? You, got, you, you know, satellites from measuring GHG, you've got so much going on around machine learning, as you mentioned, artificial intelligence that's very related to potentially near term having a significant impact on improving our climate. Yeah, I'm excited about a lot of the new uh, developments that are appearing. Uh, I'll say, first of all, uh, even though we have these positive developments, you know, the science fiction writer Wilson once said, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. And that's true with the sustainability revolution. Uh, developing countries where most of the increased emissions are projected uh, to, to come from in the years and decades ahead, if you're in Nigeria, you want to build a huge new solar farm, uh, you have to pay interest rates for capital in the private market seven times higher than the interest rates in the developed OECD countries. The World Bank ought to be leading the way to fix that. But the World Bank's been completely missing in action. Uh, President Biden ought to demand the resignation of David Malpass, the head of the World Bank. I've been saying this 
uh, and I ho hope the White House will, will we can summon the votes of among all the shareholders. The, the idea that uh, facing this climate crisis, the uh, international community is not fixing the access to capital uh, in developing countries uh, is, is literally um, insane. As the United Nations has said, the World Bank is missing in action. So why doesn't President Biden uh, fix this? I, I love President Biden. I'm a big supporter. But these things can't be allowed to just linger on. Now, let me give you a specific answer to your question. What am I most excited about? I've been spending a huge amount of my time on this new initiative called Climate Trace, uh, along with others, in, including uh, young man named Gavin McCormick at a company called Watt Time. There are um, a dozen different uh, high-tech companies uh, uh, and universities and NGOs. We've all come together to create Climate Trace. Trace stands for Tracking uh, Real-Time uh, Atmospheric Carbon Emissions. Uh, and it's difficult to, uh, to see CO2 emissions from space because uh, looking down through the column of air that's enriched with CO2, the noise to signal ratio is very difficult. You can see methane, but you have to focus on individual locations. Uh, we have pulled together a new approach that's based on machine learning and artificial intelligence to collect data continuously from 300 existing satellites in the visible light range and the infrared and other wavelengths. Uh, we collect data from 11,100 sensors, ground-based, air-based, sea-based, uh, and multiple uh, data streams available publicly on the internet to generate uh, algorithms, millions of them, and then test them with machine learning and a number, a large number of companies around the world have agreed to give us their measurements from their own boilers and their own refineries, et cetera, not for us to use, but to use for, for ground truthing so that the machine learning algorithms can constantly improve. Uh, and the old phrase, so you can only manage what you measure, actually right. makes a lot of sense. And we have not had the ability to understand exactly where the emissions are coming from. We will have that now, but getting down to the facility level, individual uh, refineries uh, and power plants and uh, garbage dumps uh, emitting methane, we're, we're going to get it all. Uh, and I'm very, very excited about it. And we're developing uh, in concert with this inventory uh, information about all the ownership data, who, who's responsible for each site. And we're working with NGOs and investors, financial institutions, and governments uh, in, in order to make the available, uh, make the information available to them so they can make it actionable as they wish to. Vice President Gore, thank you so much. And we're truly honored to have you. Thank you for the insights and perspective today. Thank you, Ahmad, and thank you for the invitation. That's it for this week's Silicon Valley Vibes. Please like, share, and subscribe. And remember, with millions of stories in Silicon Valley, you can't always get the details. But you can get the vibes right here on Silicon Valley Vibes. We'll, we'll see, see you next, next time. time. Thanks for listening to Silicon Valley Vibes. SVB is produced by Silicon Valley Leadership Group. Our executive producer is Chuck Dickinson with assistance from R.R. Robbins. AI music provided by SoundRaw. 
Recording production support provided by the platform Riverside FM. Your AI announcer, me, BB, is provided by Eleven Labs. Why was the iPhone wearing glasses? Because it lost its contacts. Boom, BB out.